This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the new host of the Antiques Roadshow spinoff where we appraise the value of old internet memes. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS. She's been in that role for more than 13 years, but recently PBS has been in the news a lot more than usual. We're recording this in mid-March, shortly after President Trump proposed a federal budget that would close down the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Paula defines the Corporation for Public Broadcasting as a quasi-governmental organization that gets federal funding to the 335 PBS stations across the country, but that money is not distributed equally. And that was the whole idea when Lyndon Johnson, right. you know, signed the Public Broadcasting Act and had this idea of this public-private partnership. You know, a city like Washington, a city like New York, some government funding would help, but cities like Cookville, Tennessee, mm -hmm. or Juneau, Alaska, are not going to make it unless there is some federal support. She'll tell a story about one of the first public TV stations she visited as CEO, Nebraska Educational Television. At a reception held for her there, she was approached by a farmer who told her, you cannot screw this up. He says, no, no, no. He said, I want you to hear my story. He said, I am raising my children on the farm I grew up on. And I worry a lot that my children are going to have disadvantages because we're in a remote part of Nebraska. But you're in our lives. And you make the difference to my kids. Mm -hmm. And if you mess this up, you are putting my kids at risk. Mm. And I just want you to remember that. Paula, welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you, Kara. Um, Pleasure there's to be so here. much to talk about. You've been there 13 years. That's I know. astonishing. I'm the longest standing president in PBS history. <laughs> I that? think I'm actually one of the longest serving media executives right now. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. They're going yeah. like flies. They're dropping yeah, like flies. Yeah. Plepler's gone. They're yeah. all. Out. I, I don't know what whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm still here. So yeah. why don't we talk about how you got here? I like to talk about. I like to get mm -hmm. people's history, and then I do want to talk about where we are with these budget cuts, and which has has been a feature of life for you for many years. I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you got to run PBS. Uh, well, it all began in a small town outside of Baltimore. <laughs> Actually, um, I, uh, you know, when I was in college, I thought I wanted to uh, be a doctor. I'm really interested in science. And uh, then I flunked organic chemistry. Ah, yes, that's a key one. Yep, that's the great separator I've come to find. And uh, then I took a lot of humanities classes because I was just interested mm -hmm. and thought I would never be gainfully employed and would never be able to leave home. And so I got a business degree with no real fix on what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, graduated from school, started looking for a job in the want ads, which is where you looked at the time. Yep, I and remember those. found a job uh, working here in Washington for UNICEF. Um, oh, wow. And so I started in the nonprofit sector. And I, um, I at one point in my career, I worked at the uh, Met Opera, not in a singing capacity, believe me, uh, but on the <laughs> business side. And I got a call one day asking me if I'd uh, consider going to WNET, which is the public television station in New York. And I, um, I thought it would be an interesting gig for a few years. I went there to actually help them uh, put together an endowment and to raise some money. And um, I then became the station manager, crazy, mm -hmm. and uh, COO. And I was in that job when I got tapped to do this. Mm -hmm. so. And so what did you think? I mean, where was PBS at this point? 
often rides high during different different mm-hmm. things that were go on. What period of time was this for PBS? So when I came to PBS 13 years ago, well, I remember my first speech, iTunes was announcing the sale of Desperate Housewives episodes for $1.99. It just mm-hmm. sounded like such a crazy thing. PBS itself had gone through some rocky years, you know, our stations are all independent. Mm -hmm. And so they're locally owned, locally operated, locally governed. Mm -hmm. I run, in essence, a co-op. So I have, you know, if you want a lesson in humility from a federated <laughs> organization, right? Try working so, in a San Francisco co-op. Well, You'll learn yeah, a lot. I don't know. I might give you a run for it. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it's just um, you have a lot of responsibility but not a lot of absolute authority. Right. And so you, you end up doing a lot of work by sense of common purpose. And so um, in the period that I've been at PBS – you know, when I first came, we understood what our business was. We had broadcast towers. We reached a certain geographic area. We were on cable and satellite. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did all this great work for little kids and for adults and felt great about it. And in these last 13 years, everything, well, everybody in media has gone through the same thing. But for a, a public media system, again, this federated loose, system, loose federation, right? you know, there, there are stations. Um, I'm sure there's still a couple general managers out there that think that we're going to go back to those good old days when it was just a handful of stations and you had to, you know, stand up to change the channel on your television set. Mm-hmm. But being able to get everybody on the same page of we've got to really try to do things in different ways. And look, guys, we're going to do this together. We're going to figure this out together. So we're not a network. We're not navigating all of these new platforms just to put Ken Burns up. Mm-hmm. We want to get your local content there, too. But we're going to have to do some things that are going to put people way out of their comfort zone. Right, right. And so because I came from a station, even though it was New York, which doesn't really count, that's mm-hmm. a that's an island off of the coast of the United mm-hmm, States. Mm-hmm. But still, I'd come from within. Station, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I went on the road. And mm-hmm. I'm still on a road trip. I've been to every state except Hawaii. How, How many PBS stations that? are there? There's 335 yeah, stations. Very I'm going, pretty. I'm okay. going at the end of, ju- end of, end of June, as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. I've been to Scranton three times, not to Hawaii once. My family's you from know. Scranton. I I'm like so Scranton. sorry. I'm going there this three weekend. Times, three times I've been. <laughs> I have a nice station there. Okay. But the thing is, the way to understand this job is you spend time on the road. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and in many of the communities I visit, we're the last remaining local broadcaster. You know, mm-hmm. there are television stations there, but they're controlled by someone far away. And mm-hmm. a lot of times, even their weather is done by, you know, four states away. Right. And, you know, you see the consequence in print journalism when, you know, you don't have reporters in a community covering a story. Sure. And you see that play out in public. So, um, so coming into this role, really working with our stations to help them see that, you know, if we really are willing to take some leaps together, you know, we can do some interesting work. Because they're also, they're in kind of the same bind that local TV stations or local newspapers have been in. Yeah. Which is the the declining amount of, first of all, television watching or how people get things. Yeah. And then also the declining ability to fund those things. Yeah. And so that's where our funky business model, you Mm -hmm. know, sort of helped. I mean, a lot of media organizations are now trying to fund themselves in the way that we have, which is, uh, you know, appealing to people to give you money for something you actually could get for free. Right. You know, I belong to an association of the public broadcasters globally. And, you know, when I first came into this job and I'd go to meetings, they'd look at me like that strange cousin, you know, because they're all state funded for the most part. And, you know, here we're, you know, begging people to give us money or not begging. We're asking people to invest. Well, maybe sometimes. I have have a tote bag for you. (laughs) But we, you know, we try try to, um, you know, you try to make the case of, you know, why it's important, why we're in it together. And and the thing is that some things in the public interest have to be funded by the public. And right. so um, I think that now it's interesting because if you are following, as I know you are, mm-hmm. what's going on around the world, a lot of, of governments are now either – you know, um, getting out of the television business. or mm-hmm. And our, the, our public broadcasting colleagues are not like, ooh, you know. But it is interesting as we think about all these platforms because right. our legacy broadcast business is growing, you know, mm-hmm. as cord cutters, cord nevers are realizing you actually can watch television for free. Mm-hmm. And we were very early on in multicast. And mm-hmm. so we have a lot of channels that we offer up. And, you know, if you do that and you package it with some other digital media, you actually can have a pretty rich media experience. You right. may not need all the cable channels. Right. So you now, how many PBS stations are there? Across, 335. 335 across mm-hmm. the entire country. Across the entire country. Entire country. And they are funded right now by? 
depends on um, how they're organized. So some of them, like my old station in New York or the station here in Washington, WETA, um, you know, have their own boards. The lion's share of their money comes from viewers like you, thank you. And then um, <laughs> they get some corporate money. Yeah. Um, and then they get some government money because you're dying to ask me the government mm, question. I don't get to I government. Know. I'm I know. not dying. I we'll get there. Well, we'll get there. let me let me. I'll How give can you, we avoid I'll it? give you the backstory uh, first, and then you can ask mm-hmm. me the deep questions. Mm-hmm. So in Agri, if you take all our stations, about 15% of their funding comes from the federal government. Mm-hmm. And the lion's share of the federal appropriation actually goes directly to them. That was the whole idea when Lyndon Johnson, right. you know, signed the Public Broadcasting Act and had this idea of this public-private partnership. Sure. And what he was really thinking about was the fact that, you know, a city like Washington, a city like New York, a city like L.A., you know, some government funding would help, but cities like Cookville, Tennessee mm-hmm. or Juneau, Alaska are not going to make it in funding a media organization, a television station, unless there is some federal support. And right. so for those two stations that I happen to mention, it's closer to 50% of their funding is government. So that's mm-hmm. existential. So if you ask me where's the money come from, you know— a, It depends. A, it depends. Right. And some of our stations are part of state governments in the South, for example. You know, our public television stations funded, came together because the states thought this is a way of getting classroom education across the state. Mm-hmm. We use television. Mm-hmm. And so there's state licensees, some of our stations are part of universities, so some of the infrastructure, a lot of public radio, by the way, are part of universities, right. so some of the infrastructure is funded by the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, you know, you could, you can pretty much say more than half of the money for every station comes more or less from the public. From the public in some and, fashion. And most of, the, most of it, small contributions. Right. Which has made us, I think, um, you know, um, more secure during these funding issues because if you—and it's like a political campaign. If you sure. have a lot of people you that give you small— beta before beta. We were beta before beta, baby. If you have a lot of people that give small contributions— mm-hmm. You know, they're they're invested. They right. care. Right. And then they get in the practice of thinking of you like that. Like mm-hmm. a, not like a subscription service, but by by these yeah. donations. It's like one of those things you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you preside over these and you're trying to bring them all together, you're saying, into the digital age. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about more about that. How do you what were some of the give me some of the things that were critical, I think, for you to try to do that. So, you know, so a whole series of things. One is we've tried to help them build their own infrastructure so they, you know, they can be in the digital space. So Mm -hmm. to begin with, we have PBS.org, which in its earlier days was really one of the most um, visited .org, not Mm -hmm. only in the United States and the world, because we were there early. It was mostly text. And then we evolved into uh, video, and more stations utilize that. We build the player that enables video to be carried, and most stations use that. Uh, But then, you know, so all that seems pretty straightforward. Um, PBS app, Mm -hmm. uh, being on places like Roku and Apple TV and Mm -hmm. so forth and building those platforms. At first, people were like, well, that means they're not coming through our local our station. Our local station, right. So we built the platform so that if you have Roku and you wanted, or Apple TV, you wanted to watch, uh, you know, your PBS app, you have to localize. So mm-hmm. you, you know, usually you pick the station that is in the market you live. But, you know, look, I spend a lot of time in Maine, and I'm interested in what's going on in the state of Maine. I localize to Maine Public Broadcasting. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what, and so what we've tried to build is to... Um, create an experience in the digital realm that looks like uh, what you would experience if you were watching your station. It would be easier for us to just, just think about it. nationalize everything, you know, as we make all of our deals just to create a national, you know, we've been talking to some of the um, proverbial skinny bundles and they're not so excited about all these local stations and we're really trying to help them see actually there's a lot of interest in local content, and if we can figure out how to make it not as painful for you and do a lot of the back-end work— Because they just to have the PBS. They just want a national feed, but right. they're missing out on a lot of great stuff. Right. I mean, I talked about— And some of your shows are from those stations, and, mostly from a the lot big of, ones, right? Yeah, but even—we've uh, got great shows that come from small stations. Look, I, you know, I talk about Cookville. Cookville is in— um, you know, Appalachia, they are the only television station in the community, and they have an amazing cultural archive. They do a lot of work in bluegrass, and mm-hmm. I mean, the stuff is fantastic. It's not just of interest to Tennessee, and to be able to to elevate that up so that it has access to a much larger audience mm-hmm. around community of interest, not just physical community, I think is pretty powerful. Right, and so you're building a local app on a national level is essentially mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you, so obviously you have those the website. You have the app. 
Mm-hmm. What, what other initiatives? So we're on Amazon. Mm-hmm. We have channels there for uh, some of our content, which is – uh, we, you know, for years we used to sell DVDs, and now in the streaming business, um, part of the way, part of our economic model is that we have distributed on. We were distributing on Netflix. Mm-hmm. We've been we're. distributing on Amazon. We have a little bit on Netflix, but you know they're not as interested in. You know they want originals, mm-hmm. or they want to own outright. And I can't. You know I I want to have stuff that's available free, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what public means. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, for Amazon, for example, we have uh, we have a drama channel. We have the master. Channel, we have a kids' channel, and we have a, a lifestyle channel we just launched. And we do that, it's helping us clear the rights for streaming uh, that we can offer up for stations. We built a service for our stations that is. Um, a library of content. Um, so if you're a member of your local station, mm-hmm. um, you can watch everything for free and broadcast. You can watch everything for free stream for some period of time if you want to see a larger library. If you are a member, then you have access to uh, right. to a streaming service. Right. We have built uh, a whole scope of work on YouTube under the banner of Digital Studios. We've mm-hmm. had about 2 billion streams, and we're now teaching our stations how to do more effective work in YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, a- anybody can... You know, think they know how to. Right, sh- that's beyond you know, just putting YouTube. An antique roadshow on. Correct. There. Right. It's not, and in fact, when we started it, the idea was not to take television producers and throw them onto the YouTube space, which I know right. some media companies did. Right. Um, we recognize that you know, because look, the through line through all our stuff is education. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we were created. That's the, the E in a lot of station call letters. That's what it stands for. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've we thought a lot about you know, particularly. You know, you know, kids. Uh, you know, how old are your kids? They're they're sixteen and thirteen now. Yeah, they so, watched a lot of PBS. Yeah, when they were little, but not so much now, probably. And they yeah, might watch uh, Nova Nature. Yeah, they well, watch good. some of it. Yeah, uh, well brought up kids then. Right. So, yeah. but then um, watch it all on YouTube though. That's where we went. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of people like the Greens that are doing great work. You know, they did Crash Course and mm-hmm. so forth. They're doing you know. And and they think of the medium differently than a television producer would. So they're making it for that. So they're making it for that platform. So that's what we're teaching our stations how to do. And, you know, I I think one of the big sea changes is getting past this idea that being a producer on YouTube is not a first step to doing something on television. It is an important platform in its own right. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while we'll do something on YouTube that might become a television series, but that should never be the intent. We did a... A series, uh, a kid's uh, television series called Word Girl, and it started out as little shorts on YouTube and then became a series. Mm-hmm. But most of the stuff we're doing, it's okay to be smart. There. You know, a lot of science, you mm-hmm. know, um, it's it's a perfect platform for all of that. And so to get stations excited about the fact that for a different price point, they can actually produce really great engaging content, and that's where all the kids are. Right, and you can make money from it from some of the platforms. For some of it, you can. We're here with Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS. After a quick break, we'll talk about how streaming is about to become the most important way that young people get PBS content. We'll also discuss how PBS is thinking about new forms of content and what Paula thinks of VR. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
We're here with Paula Kerger. She's the president and CEO of PBS. And we're talking about their digital efforts, which I think are much more involved than people realize because yeah. people think of, you know, NPR has gotten into, into podcasting, podcasting, but deep slow. Way. Yeah. Deep way, but was slow originally, but mm-hmm. had, a, had a lot of stuff. And meanwhile, the, the, the public, the, the private sector, I guess, stuff like they make became big. Mm-hmm. How are you looking at all the stuff being made that is not unsimilar to a lot of stuff? On PBS, like you'd think, some of the Netflix shows, for example, could have been PBS shows. Like I'm thinking, oh, Salt, yeah, that, that one. Yeah, some of them could be, and you know, it's it's interesting. How do you look at that? There's so many content creators now, and in documentaries yeah. and yeah. stuff like that. So you know, I, I I I you know, look, this is not a time for the faint of heart, and I think it would also be, uh, you know, you could easily be distracted by the fact that there's a lot of people playing in a lot of space. But look at Netflix, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix a couple of years ago, um, you know, was at all the festivals and it bought everything. Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, at, you know, your Sundance example bought nothing. And then this year is now back and buying and so forth. So mm-hmm. I think it's cyclical. It's not that different than what happened on cable. So you have all these cable channels that, that cropped up that in their first That's incarnation point, yeah. were supposed to be PBS, but the mm-hmm. commercial version. A&E, nobody remembers that was arts and entertainment. Yep. Abby Raven's a great person, but I don't think she thinks she's trying to do great art on A&E. She's doing interesting, engaging programs, but it's different. Right. And, you know, you could go down the line and look at a whole series of, of, uh, of cable channels. And we're watching it actually on a faster trajectory with Netflix and, and Amazon. Mm-hmm. There's a wash of, of content there. But, you know, where their priorities are, they're not in the same business as we are. We just happen to use the same tools. And right. so for us, it's a really interesting balance of understanding our North Star of, of the kind of content that we produce, mm-hmm. not being stuck in the mud and, and, you know, that we're only doing the stuff that we did 30 years ago right. because that's who we what are. Works, right. But also really paying attention to the fact that, you know, even with this wash of, of material out there, there's a lot of stories that aren't told. There are a lot of storytellers that don't have profile. Mm-hmm. And we're in every home. Right. We are seen in every home across the country. And so... For kids in particular, it's huge. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you a story. A couple of years ago, we launched uh, PBS Kids as a, as a channel. Mm-hmm. Um, when our content team uh, came and initially talked to me about it, they said, you know, look, we want to wa- launch a broadcast channel. It's like, oh, come on. You've got to be kidding. A broadcast channel? Uh-huh. And they said, no, no, no. There's all these kids that are in homes that don't have, that don't have um, cable and, you know, like, and, and that don't have access to broadband. And we think that it's a big enough market. And, uh, you know, we pushed on it because, you know, do, the, do um, our stations actually have the capacity to take another broadcast a channel? A lot of them were multi-channeling, right. but they were already filled up capacity-wise. And I was convinced to do it. And, I'll, and I will admit, part of what convinced me is that we were also going to stream the channel. And I thought, okay, I'll agree. We'll do the broadcast channel. I know that'll reach kids that need us, particularly kids that are in low-income homes or, or kids have broadcasting or kids that may be in homes where English is not right. spoken. A lot of those are disproportionately mm-hmm. broadcast-only homes, and we will have done an important thing and, and so forth. So I was all on board with that. Um, but, but at I was, first you weren't because what? The future but, is But I wasn't – yeah, I, I, I wasn't convinced that we were making a big bet on something that maybe would, you know, become of less importance as we move forward. Right. But, you know, the reality is, is that the broadcast audience is big and is, you know, is an important piece of how we're distributing. So – here is a project we did just a few years ago, which is broadcast, which is as legacy and a business as we can be in, is streamed. And then through the streaming, we've been working on embedding games into the live streams so huh. that kids can watch a live stream, pause, play the game, because then it becomes even more interactive. Right. And it just increases the educational value of the work. Right. And so I think that... You know, it's a it's a really great example of this just schizophrenic world that you have to live in where you really have to pay attention, particularly for the core business. And if our core business is to uh, is to reach people and change lives, obviously, we have the biggest possibility of impact with those who have less choices. So the right. broadcast piece has to be a focus. But at the same time, really thinking about technology as it evolves and figuring out how to push the envelope. As there's more and more digital access by everybody, by the way, that has increased for everybody, and everyone's got a phone. I mean, most my kids watch everything on their phone, pretty much. They hardly turn on the television, just, some, just to play games, actually, mm-hmm. to play like Fortnite or something mm-hmm. like that. Do you have to have a broadcast element? Do you imagine that in your future to have, or is it just... 
the just the full accessibility that you have because broadcast is what broadcast is, which well, is signals. Everybody has phones, but not everybody right. has access to broadband. Right. And right. that's the, you know, and let's, um, and I'm a big advocate for broadband for a lot of reasons mm-hmm. because I just think access is such an important, oh, you know, and the digital divide, which we just continue regard. to talk about, you know, doesn't get bridged in the way that it needs to. And mm-hmm. I mean, it has such huge implications, both from a, a moral standpoint as well as an economic standpoint. And mm-hmm. so, I think that, you know, there was that article in the Times, I think it was last year, that had that um, a great photograph of the two kids that were standing outside their school trying to do their homework, tapping into the broadband from the school, mm-hmm. you know, on their phones. Right. So one of the things that we've done in, in, um, in the kid space is that we also are building games that um, parents can download, but kids don't have to be um, online. online to, to play. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're just, uh, you know, we're constantly thinking thinking about ways that we can use capacity. On a low, on a low it, Yeah. But, but the other thing I'll say about broadcast is, you know, so part of the work we do is broadcast um, as a media organization. The mm-hmm. other thing that we do is that we use our spectrum for um, first alerts. I mean, people don't know that, but we're the, we're the backup redundancy for the first alert system for the mm-hmm. country. And the reason that broadcast is important is because – um, you know, digital overloads. Right. And so if you've ever been anywhere like New York after 9-11 or after the power outage, mm-hmm. um, you know that you couldn't call anyone right. because everything just melted down because of the demand. And so being able to have a one-to-many infrastructure, I think, still matters. Where does most of your viewing come from? Still broadcast by a large amount? I'm guessing lesser and lesser. Right? Well, you know, we're all watching the... You know trajectory. Yeah. So I so think they're with, coming to. They're so with kids, yeah. with kids, it probably is going to cross within the next couple of months. Oh, as wow. a matter of fact, so streaming, streaming more than and you know we we build our streams for mobile. We build our streams and and mobile has has obviously surpassed uh, desktop as a way that mm-hmm. um, you know and I think televisions over, over the top is really important. You know I used to say that people always gravitated towards the biggest screen mm-hmm. at their discretion. It's not the case anymore. I mean you know it. You know, you, you can sit in um, in your living room or your bedroom with the TV set bolted to the wall, but you're watching on a pad. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about also the space that we're in right now is, you know, so much is on demand. But, you know, I've always believed, and now I'm starting to see articles with other people that believe the same thing I do, is it's almost too much and that people really um, also look for curators. Pro- programming, yeah. And so, you know, we've had these endless conversations for years about does broadcast schedule even matter anymore? Mm-hmm. And, and actually it does because well, there, are, does. there are a lot of people that really do rely on the fact that they can sit down and they go to a brand that they mm-hmm. like. Um, and not all brands are equal. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. every brand has the same significance. Sure. I think ours does. Yeah. People know what PBS is, and they'll turn to PBS, and they'll see something they like or don't, or don't and then it's going on. But but it's easier to do that than to think, okay, what do I feel like watching tonight? Am I in the middle of that series? Right. Do I want to go? Yeah, right? <laughs> I feel like that. I know, time. right? I just turn on the TV. You turn on the go. TV set. You yeah. Know, it's like, what's there? Yeah, but then I just have cable people screaming at each other, and then I turn it off. Yeah, and, well, like, put watch on music. us. Watch us. Watch us. <laughs> I do watch PBS all the time. So when you're thinking about the content itself. So that's the delivery systems. Obviously, it's going to be mobile. It's going to be streaming. It's probably going to be in lots of different devices and and things like that as you move forward. Have you made a big investment in VR and and AR or anything like that? Yes. I wouldn't say big, uh, but we are making investments in that. And and probably the person in uh, public broadcasting that's doing the most interesting work, and that is Rainey Aronson, who's executive producer of Frontline. Mm-hmm. I, I think Frontline of all the series, people always ask me this question, which they always think is a softball, like, mm-hmm. what's your favorite program on public television? Or, <laughs> you know, care. and they don't realize that you pick one and you put yeah. everyone else in yeah. therapy, right? But but the thing that <laughs> is, um, but it is the most important that yeah. we do. I mean, yeah. I think that, I, you know, I'm proud of the news hour, so I don't want right. any news hour viewers thinking, oh, why didn't you mention the news right. hour? But the but the thing is that there are so few people in the, truly in the investigative journalism space. Yes, a hundred percent. And so um, I was just on your one about Facebook. Yes, was, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so the power of the um, of the content itself is important. But for a very long time, they have thought about um, how do you extend the reach of a broadcast event into something that um, actually is 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 more deeply felt. And mm-hmm. so. 
they were very early on in um, probably more than any of our other producers in putting content online and then putting full, so interviews, full online, interviews online. I think that's And then great. really keeping a resource. And, you know, look, I, you know, for a long time now, people go online to look for stuff. But I used to get calls from, you know, congressional offices, think tanks, the White House and everything looking for programs that have been on. Mm-hmm. So to be able to have that, that collection and full interviews, she's very interested in transparency. So also if you see something and you're not quite sure, no, you great. know, the source of anything, you can go online and look. But she's begun to experiment more heavily with other other uh, platforms. And VR is a place that, um, you know, she's she created some work out of a Syrian refugee camp. Mm-hmm. She partnering with Nova has done some great things um, looking at, you know, the disappearance of glaciers. And, and you can, you know, it's the most empathetic of media. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's perfect for us because mm-hmm. it's purely an immersive experience. Mm-hmm. And you can be part of something and understand it a very different way through VR. 100%. So. I think it's... I, I, Everyone's always down in VR. I'm like, no, this is going to be. I've spent a lot of time in the empathy labs at Stanford, all kinds of different things, stuff that Laura uh, Lorraine Jobs did around mm-hmm. art, art and art, mm-hmm. you know, f- around immigration. It was the most moving. It really is moving. If it's done correctly, you could see it being badly used or used for entertainment purposes in Correct. ways that are icky. But it also, I was oddly enough, I was talking to, uh, I'm blanking on her name. She's an actress, but she was going to do Shakespeare in VR. And thought wow. it would be great. It was like amazing, um, and so there was like there were there's all kinds of cool ideas coming around. Well, where, look, educational ideas. In 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 part of my side life, I'm involved with the um, National Museum of Natural History, and mm-hmm. I think that as a as a media platform, it's huge. I think for museums, it's huge because yes. you know if you think about things like you know helping people understand the impact that we're having on the environment, mm-hmm. to be able to put you immersed into into an environment, I think just creates an a whole other, it just creates a whole other experience. Expensive though, right now. Of course, it's expensive. And the devices and the devices. Yeah, but you know, but eventually, but, but eventually, the cost will come down, and and you know, I, and I think that you know, perhaps games will drive some of it. I don't right. know, but I, I I think it's a it's a platform worth watching more than some others. And then lastly, in this section, content. How much has it changed the content? Obviously, you're known for Down Abbey and the masterpiece theater stuff. Um, whatever you know, of course, I make jokes about um, Antique Roadshow, but it's popular. It remains it's usually, it's our number one show. Yeah. You yeah, know, so what, what is has content changed or shifted in mentality or, or yeah well a couple of things one is look we've you know we've been talking about different platforms and uh, you know the length of programs you know I love I love short film mm-hmm. and short film you know, just has struggled forever because, you know, you, it's broadcast. What do you do? You put a bunch of films together that right. may or may not connect. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's always very unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started doing online film festivals online. Uh, <laughs> of course, yeah. they're online. Yeah. They're um, awesome. Short film festivals Great online. Party. And the thing is, you know, I just think it, it it's just, it's a format on itself. I love short stories. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it's um, a great if it's online. beautifully done, it's a great use. But I think beyond that, you know, look, um, we want to continue to evolve the content that we're doing. And we want to create one of the things that does make us different than anyone else is Netflix isn't local. Amazon's not local. I don't have $15 billion to spend on content. I never mm-hmm. I never no, will. We've never been overfunded. Mm-hmm. Shock to everyone. <laughs> and so, you know, we've always had to think a little more creatively. We do right. a lot of stuff in partnerships. And in full disclosure, we have a partnership with Vox mm-hmm. with uh, a film we've done with Marcus Sam. Samuelson called No Passports Required. Oh, yeah. And so I think that, you know, part of what we're looking at is building partnerships with other organizations, not just the BBC around drama, but, right. you know, other types of media organizations. You know, that British drama thing just always works, doesn't it? I know, that's beautiful, it? Do you think right? there's any era it's not going to work in? We're going to be, like, on Mars when you're watching, like... No, we're going to be watching from Mars. From we're Mars. definitely going to be watching Something British, yeah, and they're going to be in be. outfits. It will and be. be. And people will love it. Yeah. You know, the other thing about content that we're, we've spent a lot of time thinking about is the fact that we are local. Mm-hmm. And so this past fall, we did a project called Great American Read. The whole idea was to try to identify 
really was to get people excited about reading and to talk about books, books that are meaningful to you. It didn't really matter what book was picked. It was just an organizing principle to get people excited. And the thing is, our local stations could do stuff around it. You, you had, you know, book groups and all this other kind of stuff. And I, I you know, it's it was a simple idea, but I think more things that we can do that really leverage the fact that we actually have local media organizations that actually can bring people together. Mm-hmm. And I think Physically. that's a that's an interesting way to think about how do you develop contact around it. And we have two projects that we're thinking about for the future that would fit into that, that would really get people interested and excited about having local conversation. Mm -hmm. That's the thing we're missing in this country. But is there any length thing that's happening? You're talking about shorter films, but that's just because you want to show off your films. You have to change things. One of the things I was talking about when, you know, Mike went belly up, I was like, millennials don't need different content. Mm -mm. They don't need snackable content. They don't need... They might like some content that's snackable, but it's such a terrible word. It's my least favorite well, word. Well, you know, content. I'll say two words, Ken Burns. Yeah. You know, so people always clutch a little bit when you have the next big Ken Burns. And, you know, we have 16 hours of country music coming mm-hmm. up this fall. So excited. It's going to be fantastic. Do you know how much I love country music? It is People fantastic. are often surprised by that. But it is fantastic. I cannot wait. It is. You have no idea. I'm literally going to just park myself in front of the whole thing. And you should. Yeah. Because it is, it is, you know, he always says, this is the best thing I've ever done. Uh, but it might be. Yeah. I mean, it's just because the stories Blue are grass, so everything. powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's all Dolly personal Park stories. in there? Oh, yeah. We need Big some Dolly. Big time. We need some Dolly. We need some yeah. Dolly. So that's great. <laughs> so, so there's, so, but you don't change, you're not necessarily thinking this change. It doesn't have to be twitchier. It doesn't have to be slower, faster, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, the only place where I, I would say um, we have really thought a lot about uh, different forms of content is with kids. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say twitchier or any of that stuff, but I but we do pay attention to what kids are watching because right. the thing with our kids' content, you know this, is mm-hmm. it's all based on core curriculum. We're focused principally on kids up to the age of eight. Right. Uh, we work with um, experts that help us understand what are the things mm-hmm. that – uh, kids need to know before they go into pre-K the, for the first time yeah. or any kind of formal pre-K because sometimes, you know, look, I go to communities where kids are like five before right. they actually en- enter a real school <laughs> or as young as three. But, you know, there's skills that kids need to learn. There's social-emotional skills. That's yeah. what Fred Rogers knew, you right. know, how to deal with emotions and all that stuff. What What are the most popular kids? Well, ours was Tinky Winky and there were Wiggles involved and I think there was the Magic School Bus all the yeah, time. Yeah, those are all great. So the, those the are number, all yours, The number right? one, all... um, uh, the Wiggles were not but the um, but the thing um, you had magic school bus you had so the number one show for kids is Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood which is no idea the successor of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood oh okay so um, for years we have talked to Fred's company about doing a new uh, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood mm-hmm. and you know there is no other Fred. And so a woman, um, Angela Santramora, who was quite inspired by him, had interned with him, had gone on to do Blue's Clues for Nickelodeon. And she really spent time thinking about how could you reinvent Mr. Rogers. So she did animate it. She did a little live action. And Daniel Tiger is Daniel Striped Tiger's son. And it's all social emotional skills, everything from potty mm-hmm. training to, um, you know, how to deal with anger. You know, there there are episodes that I've benefited from tremendously <laughs> these last years, and it's it's the number one program, very heavily streamed, by the way. Yeah, so, interesting. Um, you know, and Sesame Street. That's still and Sesame Street is celebrating its fiftieth yeah. anniversary. God mm-hmm. bless it. Do you and the Electric Company or is that on? Electric that Company is now is now that was gone. my that era. Was, that was, that was I when know. I was younger, yeah. younger, yeah. not young. We're here with Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS. We're going to take another quick break now, but after this, we'll talk about President Trump's proposal to close the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and why it would be devastating for rural public TV stations. We'll also talk about what people who want to keep PBS fully funded can do to make their voices heard. We're here with Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS, and we've been talking about platforms and content and how it's changed and how it hasn't changed in some ways. So the recent budget, the federal budget that's been proposed, it doesn't mean it's going to be the federal budget. I think that's going to change rather dramatically. Um, But it would close down the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Can you explain to people what that means so so that people understand? I can also give you a civics lesson on how budgets become (laughs) law. There was a children's children's show. That's it. That's it. So as you know, the budget belongs to Congress. Conjunction Junction stays with me to this day. And it should. And it should. Yep. So, you know, the president 
submits his budget recommendation, and uh, this year, as it has been for the last two years, um, the recommendation is zero funding for public broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And so um, where we start is— Explain CPB. And it's a a little more complicated (laughs) because we um, actually—our funding is— is put forwards two years in advance. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that has been historically how we've been funded. The idea was, it was actually two reasons why we were in, in this category of which there are very few organizations left in this category. One is to preserve against editorial influence. You mm-hmm. know, we do something that irritates some member of Congress and then right. they try to take all of our money away. So if you have that which buffer. Happened. If you have that buffer. And then the second is um, is was really anticipating the fact that, you know, our work is, um, you know, it takes a long time to produce um, work. And if you want to enter a project, you want the, an idea that you have the funding on the other end. So um, what he's recommended, uh, what the administration has recommended is um, really eliminating the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is a quasi-governmental organization, which is actually how the federal money flows from Treasury to our stations. And mm-hmm. so it is an entity that, um, you know, takes in the federal appropriation. It makes sure that our stations are operating as they should, as nonprofit public broadcasting entities, and then it distributes them out based on a formula. And so by zeroing out the, you know, the money flowing to it, it eliminates the organization because you don't need an organization if you have no money to divvy up. And um, and it would it, it would be an existential issue for probably a third of the stations in our country, mm-hmm. largely in rural communities. Okay. And so um, what we so that have— that means no funding whatsoever to public That means zero funding. And right now the number is? And right now the number that comes into public television, public radio is $445 million. Mm-hmm. Small. Small. $1.35 per person per year. Right. Can't even buy a cup of coffee right, in yeah. most— that's for both for of that. them together. That's for both together. That goes into the corporation public broadcast. Goes into the corporation. One mm-hmm. piece goes to radio. One piece goes to uh, television. And so, um, you know, the the thing that has, and I made reference to this a little while ago, the thing that I think has been very helpful for public broadcasting is that there are a lot of people around the country that really count on us. I, mm-hmm. You know, one of the... Uh, really, it's truly a gift, actually, this job is is being able to visit communities. And I remember one of the very first stations I visited was Nebraska. And mm-hmm. I was very focused when I first took the job of, of visiting, you know, parts of the country that I didn't know as well and particularly smaller communities. I wanted to understand how the public television stations worked because although all the stations are similar, they're different. You know, mm-hmm. priorities are a little different. And um, I knew my station in New York, but I knew it was very different than our station in Peoria or um, Nebraska Educational Television, which was is a statewide network. So I went to Nebraska, and they had a nice little reception for me. And this guy came in, and he was a farmer. And he had driven three hours uh, to come to this reception. And he walked over, and he looked me in the eye, and he shook my hand, and he told me that he'd driven three hours. And he said, I came because I need to tell you something. And he said, you cannot screw this up. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I said, well, well, you know, I'm doing my little— Paula thing and saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, this is what we're going to do and everything. He says, no, no, no. He said, I want you to hear my story. He said, I am raising my children on the farm I grew up on. And I worry a lot that my children are going to have disadvantages because we're in a remote part of Nebraska. But you're in our lives. And you make the difference to my kids. Mm-hmm. And if you mess this up, you are putting my kids at risk. Mm. And I just want you to remember that. I think about that guy yeah. every day. Now, I, that, you know, Paula. I've had, yeah. So, <laughs> so but the point is, um, you know, one of our biggest advocates on Capitol Hill is Tom Cole from Oklahoma. He mm-hmm. knows what we do. He also knows, you know, we do this other work. You know, we've been talking a lot about digital and all the stuff that we're doing for general audience population. We run a project called Learning Media. It is a broadband pipe into classrooms with educational assets. Now, what does that mean? It's um, so I don't know if you remember this. Remember a kid. And the teacher would want, you know, like an hour off in the afternoon, yeah, they and they'd movie. find the, the kid from the AV club mm-hmm. with the pocket protector, and he'd go into the mm-hmm. closet, and he'd get the, tr- the cart, and he'd thread the film, and we'd yeah. all watch it with our heads on our desks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but teachers today, really what they want to be able to do is use bits of content in the classroom. You know, kids are surrounded by media, and then they go into classrooms that a lot of times look like they did when you and I were in school. Right. And so creating— um, 
you know, if so if you look at this legacy of all this great content that we use, and I was always impressed when I'd see a teacher that would buy a DVD and then figure out the right place in the DVD to play the, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, so everything's digitized. And we can also take the content and break it up. So rather than having 16 hours or 18 hours of um, uh, Vietnam from Ken Burns or the Civil War series, you know, you can you can take the curriculum that teachers are using in the classroom because the other thing that besides money that teachers don't have is time, mm-hmm. and you can pull out the right clips so that they can you know most classes are now wired with broadband so they can use it. So in addition to um, using our own stuff, there are a lot of organizations that have really great content: mm-hmm. Smithsonian, National Archives, NASA. All these organizations have really beautiful material, and they always think, well, the teachers will come and they'll find our stuff. And right. like, so they're not going to do it. it they're not. And so taking their stuff and doing for them what we do and in broadcast, mm. which is taking other producers' stuff. And vetting it and, properly. And vetting it and then putting it in the right context and putting it with lesson plans and offering it up mm-hmm. is something really powerful. All of that is what the federal budget helps to fund. Right. And so what happens now? Because this has happened before, right? So what They've happens now? i tried to now, zero out the—I remember Jesse yeah. Helms were involved in yeah, So point. what happens now is actually really important. And what I really worry about, because I, I just— just was talking to someone this morning uh, who said, you know, are you really worried about this? Because you always go through this and Mm -hmm. it's all going to be okay, right? And I said, only if people reach out to the legislators and say, Mm -hmm. this matters to me. Mm -hmm. Because the two things that legislators care about is they do care about their three things. I think that most people come to Washington wanting to do right. You mm-hmm. might agree or disagree with what right means, mm-hmm. but I think most people have, right. a, have a larger idea of what they think is good for their community, sure. right? So you assume that. The second thing is they care about their constituents. Mm-hmm. That's who they're they representing. And they want to be reelected. And so if their constituents say this matters to me, then chances are they're not going to vote to wipe us out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, I am very sympathetic. There are lots of things that could be funded, Mm -hmm. and we could very easily fall off the table like the NEA and the NEH and all these other wonderful organizations. That's what I wrote about those at the Washington Post. If people don't step up and say this matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the important thing. So, you so know, the argument would be that raise your own money. Like, there's Yeah, the, so the argument is, yeah, go raise your own money. And then I point to, oh, the commercial market will pick it up. And I, and I always say, well, really? Mm-hmm. You know, that works maybe in the short term mm-hmm. for, for a project or two, but, you know, on a sustained right. basis, who's there? Right. And go to all the communities I'm visiting where there the isn't. only remaining reporters there are television and radio reporters. Mm-hmm. And I think it really matters in this society. Have you been gotten pulled into the political fight, like whether you're liberal or it, – it does, right? Well, you know – Radio look, more than – Radio, probably a little bit radio more. But, you know, I, look, I've, I've talked to enough people who says, well, you know, you're awfully liberal. And I said, well, just point to me what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me what that is because, you know, if we – if liberal means that we really work hard to try to have lots of different perspectives – but I, I don't think so. And when you talk to most people, they don't see it. So yeah. I don't understand why we're a political pawn. And it's mm-hmm. it's frustrating because I will tell you, Carrie, the amount of time and energy that goes into this every year to have to make this case is time that gets pulled yeah. away from other things. Yeah, PBS is not particularly. I can't think of um, – what was the most controversial show for you all? Well, you know, if you if you look back, I mean, people will take exception with front lines or mm-hmm. they'll take, you know, they'll point at documentaries that we've done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there were um, some hearings, uh, I think it must have been last year's go around where, you know, people were looking at some of the independent film. We do a lot of independent film, right. more than some of the stations right. that get recognized as being the home of independent mm-hmm. film. We've always been. And if you show different people's perspectives, that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Sure. Absolutely. That's the most liberal most we get. Most the tent poles are pretty down the line <laughs> Yeah, you know, but non, I, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, I, look, we live in this weird time, and mm-hmm. and you know, I I loved Gwen Eiffel. She was, in addition to a fantastic well. colleague, a, a great friend, and she used to always say, "Look, our role is to bring light, not heat." And and you know, some people aren't aren't comfortable with light, mm-hmm. so 
Yeah, absolutely. So how do you imagine it's going to—you guys are lobbying, you're you're using social media and other ways to do that? We are using Protect My Public. If you're listening and you want to be part of a movement, go to Protect My Public and Mm -hmm. you can be part of it. You you don't even have to do that. Just just call or email your legislator. Do you happen to know the reason why? Is this just the Republicans do this all the time or is it just this particular administration? It's not—you know, we've been in this situation many times. Situation before. So I just think it's just— I don't know. I, I, if I understood what fired it, I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but it is what it is. And mm-hmm. so um, all we can do, and look, we have, you know, you know, look, Barry Goldwater, for Pete's sake, was a huge fan of public broadcasting. <laughs> we have great conservatives. Barry we can Goldwater, for Pete's sake. Barry Goldwater, for Pete's sake. <laughs> Come you on. Know? So, um, you know, he was very close to Joan Cooney, who mm-hmm. founded Sesame Workshop. He saw, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful video of Fred Rogers on Capitol Hill talking right. about what he was attempting to do with this series. And I think if people really understood what we were doing, mm-hmm. you know, then they would say, you know, maybe we should give you more money, not, right. you know, not right. less. But right. anyway. And, and so if you had to pick, you know, PBS in 20 years, how would you look at that? What well, would you think it is? Well, I think in 20 years, you know, it's it's interesting. We do a strategic plan that we build on a three-year basis because mm-hmm. for me, it's always hard to— I mean, I just look back three years ago and not, not to mention 13 years ago when I started and how much shifts. Mm-hmm. But I would hope a few things. One is that the principles around our— our uh, content are intact. I think that's our guide star. I mean, we want to do important stories that are authentic and that make a difference in people's lives. And I would I would hope that PBS 20 years from now would not trade on that. Mm-hmm. I would also hope that as, um, as media continues to evolve, that PBS continues to be innovative. I mean, people don't know that, um, you know, we created closed captioning, that, mm-hmm. you know, we were the first big media organization to use satellite broadcast. Tech. We, tech, we've been ahead of the curve um, every step of the way. <laughs> and so I think we need to um, we need to be, 20 years from now, as innovative as we can be. I You know, I work with a lot of creative people that are all in the tech space, mm-hmm. and we can't, um, we can't be afraid to be bold and to move into that space as much as possible. And mm-hmm. my goal, before I hang up my skates, whenever mm-hmm. that is, is I would love to see us with more funding so mm-hmm. that we're not lurching from year to year trying to figure out how to you know, knit things together. So you need an internet I'm, billionaire. Apparently. Yeah, I need an internet billionaire. So if you're listening lot. to I one, know a lot of them. Yeah. So if you're listening How many you, billions do you need? You could I, I would take even one would would make a big difference <laughs> because I think, you know, as a lot of people are worried about the future of journalism mm-hmm. and are investing a lot of great organizations, I've been looking at things like Report for America and others. Mm-hmm. But we're here, and we have an infrastructure, and we are hugely trusted. So mm-hmm. this is a place where you can make big impact. I hear Facebook's giving away money out yeah. of guilt, out of sheer guilt for ruining the entire— that's, Anybody wants to, to write a check, I'm here to their, talk to you. Just call me. You'll take their money. I got some ideas for you, <laughs> yeah. Paul. I, got, I know some, and I, I couldn't irritate them into giving you money. I'm always trying to take their money as, as much as possible and make them feel bad about it so they feel good. I can make them feel great about <laughs> good. it. Good. You make them feel yeah. good, I'll make them feel guilty. I can guilty. promise they'll go to heaven. You know, All right. Just... This has been a great conversation. <laughs> This is uh, Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate Thank it. You, it was I'm fun. very excited to uh, watch the country music thing. I'm so excited. It's great. You have no idea. And thanks you all to listening. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Paula, where can people find you online? And also it's hashtag protect public protect my public protect my um, public hashtag protect my public and uh, yeah go to pbs.org tweetus.org okay yeah. um, now that you're done with this go and check out our other podcast recode media and pivot you can find those shows wherever you found this one thanks for listening to this episode of recode decode thanks to our editor joel robbie and our producer eric johnson i'll be back here on wednesday tune in then